current events and the fortunate circumstance of experts we had on campus and in our larger network to bring this event together. I have to say that as a scholar of Africana studies, one of my biggest concerns in my life and in my work are the questions of liberation, both liberation at the personal level, but also liberation at the levels of nation and of culture and in all the ways we can think about it. And we know that in the past century, struggles for liberation have been some of the most important events in human history. And today, we're going to reflect on a legacy that had its genesis in one such episode of liberation in Africa in the person of Robert Mugabe. Obviously, he passed very recently, and that raised up the question about his legacy. What was it? He was a controversial figure, loved on one hand, very much not loved on another hand. And one of the things that I know about liberation is that no matter how ideal it is in your mind, it is always complicated by the complexities of human nature and human beings. So those are really the kinds of questions that we've come here to discuss today. And we have some wonderful panelists from our institution and from our friend institution Brandeis to discuss it. So to get the program rolling, I'd like to introduce my colleague and the head of the co-sponsoring organization, The Freedom Project, Professor of English, Kathy Lynch. And mostly what I want to do is to introduce the associate director of The Freedom Project, who is one of the prime organizers of this event, um, Shingrai Tautsera, affectionately known around Wellesley as Shingy. He is the associate director of The Freedom Project at Wellesley College. Shingi is a Zimbabwe-born political economist and specialist in international development, a PhD candidate, a Mellon Mays Fellow, and a Trillium Scholar at the University of Ottawa with plans to complete his PhD this calendar year, right? <laughs> with a dissertation on the politics of the emerging petroleum industry in Uganda. He also holds two master's degrees in political science and international relations. And in addition to his work on Uganda, Shingi has given many papers on the political situation in his home country of Zimbabwe, especially on the issue of democratization. His research interests broadly include comparative political and economic development and good governance and human rights in East and South Africa. So Shingi is going to introduce the rest of the panel. Um, good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking our respective chairs that we've just heard from Drs. Mapayan and uh, Kepi Lynch for their institutional and uh, personal support that made this uh, event possible. Uh, as Kepi mentioned, my name is Shingirai, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Freedom Project here at uh, Worsley College. And um, I'd like to start us off by introducing our speakers uh, uh, for this evening and then we get into the discussion. We are honored this evening to have in our midst Dr. Wellington Nyangoni as our guest speaker. Dr. Nyangoni is a professor of African and African-American studies at Brandeis University. He's an expert on African economic development, comparative third world politics, China-Africa trade relations, and international organizations uh, such as the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, WTO, 
and the African Union. Dr. Nyangoni is also originally from Zimbabwe and is one of the first group of freedom fighters that kick-started the struggle for Zimbabwe's independence. Dr. Nyangoni, everybody. And um, I'd like also to introduce my colleague at Wesley College, Dr. Chipodendere, who is the new Assistant Professor of Political Science in the Africana Studies Department here at Wesley College. Dr. Dendere studies democratization, elections, and voting behavior in Africa, as well as the impact of social media on politics. She is a prominent public intellectual who regularly provides commentary on African politics for major media outlets such as the BBC, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Um, and also communicates her views via social media platforms. She is also originally from Zimbabwe. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Shikende. Uh, to begin, uh, just before we hear from our speakers, I'm just going to give a brief overview of uh, this man uh, who is the subject of our discussion this evening, Robert Gabro Mugabe. Robert Mugabe is the former president of Zimbabwe. He served from 1980 to 2017. He was born in Kutama village in Zimba, Zimbabwe in 1924, and he was described as an aloof, quiet, brilliant, and studious boy. He eventually obtained his education at Kutama College in his home area, and then the University of Fort Hare in South Africa, where his political sensitization began together with other prominent leaders from the Southern African region, such as the founding president of Botswana, Serete Kama, the founding president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, and also the founding president of Tanzania, Julius Nyerere, just to mention a few. Mugabe subsequently worked as a teacher in Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Ghana, where he was inspired by the work of Ghana's founding president, Kwame Nkrumah, who was one of the most prominent Pan-African leaders at the time. Ghana was also the first country in Africa to attain political independence in March 1957. And Mugabe also met his first wife, Sally Heifron, who was a teacher and independence activist in Ghana as well. Mugabe's participation in independence movement started in 1960, and this eventually resulted in a 10-year incarceration from 1964 to 1974. Upon his release, he became the leader of the militant ZANU Freedom Movement, which mainly operated from Mozambique. The war eventually ended with a negotiated peace settlement in 1979, elections in 1980, which Mugabe won, thus becoming the first president of independent Zimbabwe. In fact, he first became prime minister in 1980, then became executive president in 1987. Mugabe enjoyed considerable local and international popularity in the nascent years of his rule. Despite the history of colonialism and racial segregation, he pursued a policy of national unity, reconciliation, protection of private property instead of retribution. His government also invested considerably in social welfare programs, particularly education, and this, this resulted in Zimbabwe having one of the best education systems in the world at all levels. Um, Mugabe also received several honorary degrees, um, and he received the Knight Commander of the Order of Bath by the Queen of England in 1984, so he was basically a knight. And this was granted in recognition of his exceptional statesmanship. However, this was withdrawn in 2008 at the height of human rights abuses by his government, along with the revocation of other, uh, or the substantial uh, number of the honorary degrees that he had received since becoming president, uh, since becoming prime minister in 1980. 
However, his popularity withstood his deployment of an elite North Korean trained brigade in the southern region of the country from 1982 to 1986, which resulted in the death of an estimated 20,000 civilians, um, largely drawn from the opposition Zapo party. Although Zimbabwe was a democracy at the time, Mugabe never kept his affection for one-part for one state a secret, and this partly accounts for the authoritarian streak that characterized his rule. Eventually, Mugabe oversaw a period of chronic political and economic crisis in Zimbabwe starting in the late 1990s. Highlights include a wave of farm invasions starting in 2000, which resulted in the collapse of Zimbabwe's agro-based economy and the displacement, death, displacement and death of several white farmers and their employees throughout the country. Zimbabwe's inflation rate also rose to a historical figure of 500 billion percent, accompanied by food, currency, medicine, fuel shortages, company closures, and a rate of unemployment that hovered around 90% as the bulk of economic activity in the country moved into the informal sector. Security forces and armed militia from the ruling ZANU-PF party unleashed violent attacks, killings, and forced disappearances of opposition political party and civil society activists and media practitioners, and also the manipulation of election results in every general election since 2002. The crisis in Zimbabwe resulted in millions of citizens leaving the country, becoming economic refugees in other countries in the Southern African region and beyond, particularly South Africa, Botswana, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and as you guessed it, the United States. Mugabe's 37 years of power eventually came to an inglorious end in November 2017 when his own army ousted him uh, from power replacing him with his protege, the current president, Emerson Mnangagwa, who actually had served with him for over 52 years. This was largely a culmination of factional um, infighting within the ruling ZANU-PF regime. Now that he has died, age 95, in Singapore, there have been several competing perspectives on who he was and what his legacy would be. Some hold him in high regard as a freedom fighter, a charismatic leader, a fiercely brilliant intellectual and pan-African hero who is beyond any reproach. Others argue on the contrary, describing him as a murderous despot and a narcissist whose protracted stay in office devastated the, li the lives of uh, millions of Zimbabweans. Others take a more nuanced approach, indicating that the complex convergence of events and influences in Mugabe's life and his own personality shaped his choices. And thus argue that he was indeed a liberator, just like Mandela but also a flawed human being. Others prefer to be indifferent. Well, this evening we shall unpack, we shall unpack all these uh, activities. And so join me to welcome uh, to the podium, Professor Nyangoni, who's going to deliver his remarks. saying thank you for, for inviting me here. Uh, I'm not new to Wellesley. I taught at Wellesley off and on uh, for about five years. 
and uh, I have some very good memories here, uh, meeting a lot of people, discussing issues of politics, economics, uh, particularly with the pertinent departments, political science, and the Craig is here, uh, Department of Economics, and some people in sociology. Uh, but the most important thing I want to say is that my generation in Zimbabwe rejected the kind of politics our fathers and elders did. Uh, we came to the conclusion in the late 1950s, early 1960s, that there was never going to be independence in Zimbabwe. That the idea of compromise, talking, and negotiation would never lead us anywhere. So the only option left was to embark on revolutionary warfare, uh, at that time called guerrilla warfare. And uh, I left Zimbabwe in 1962 uh, to go and learn how to fight, uh, to learn what a revolution is all about. And uh, this is where my lecture begins. When we studied in 1962 and when Zimbabwe African National Union was formed, we adopted the ideology. We said three things to it. One was that ours was a struggle for freedom. Not a civil rights struggle, but ours was a struggle for freedom. Two, that learning from other African countries, being free can mean a lot of things, because it's just political freedom. But it would also mean oppression, incarceration. And uh, we were not happy with what was happening in many other African countries or other third world countries. So what we said, therefore, is that our struggle needs an ideology. And this ideology would be the basis for all people to come together, to fight together, knowing that we believe in something. And our ideology was not particularly well developed. Uh, it was socialism. But within the socialist uh, world view, there were some who were Marxist Leninists. And some people were saying, yes, we need to be socialist, but from an African tradition. Some of us said, you can't have socialism with an African tradition. Uh, those days are over. So what did we do? Well, we decided that armed struggle was the way to go. Unfortunately, our leadership was not with us. So we literally had to force them, uh, put pressure on them. And when Robert Mugabe assumed the leadership, because we appointed him there, because the leader of the movement at that time was Ndabaningi Stolle. And Ndabaningi Stolle had made an interview that he would never 
embark in a violent revolution. And ZANU had considered itself as what? A revolutionary party, and a revolutionary party entails some form of violence. And we removed the Baringi story and put Robert Mugabe as the leader. And we had so many problems in the late 1960s. Uh, in Zanu, people were killing each other. In Zapu, people killing each other. So we had uh, our partnership with the African National Congress, African National, uh, uh, the African National Congress, and also with the SWAPO, and uh, in Mozambique, uh, the Front for the Liberation of Zimbabwe. So this is how our struggle came. Now, Mugabe himself had never trained as a revolutionary fighter. Apparently, he couldn't shoot. Uh, but he was the most impressive person. And also because he came from a minority group of the Shonans, so we're comfortable with him being in power. However, there was a problem. The revolutionary movement was divided, regionally, ethnically, ideologically. And this is where Mugabe took over power. And he became the leader of this revolutionary party with these different groups of people. Unfortunately, during the time of his president's prime ministership, he was never able to bring all these different groups together. And uh, when he became prime minister, interestingly enough, he had a cabinet. But some members of the cabinet, almost 50% of his members of the cabinet, met before the actual cabinet meeting. They had secret meetings, adopted an agenda, which Mugabe didn't know. You know, do you know who told him about this? It was the British. The British ambassador said, do you know you are having two cabinet meetings? So-and-so is leading another cabinet meeting. And that was Edison Robo at that time. Um, people then strategized how can we make Mugabe powerful? The leadership in Zanu had always been collective. No one person made the decision. The group would meet just like in the World Council. You meet, you make a decision. But this decision, group of people, again, were divided ideologically. Two, you also have the conflict that arose in the southern part of Zimbabwe in Matavirement. Uh, a lot of weapons were being brought into the country. Uh, they were coming through South Africa. The Russians actually were giving the opposition military tanks. And when we were fighting for independence, we asked for military tanks, and the Russians wouldn't give it to us. But after we were independent, the Russians or the Soviets started giving weapons to the opposition. And some of the weapons threw, came through Zambia. And what happened in the process is that more and more weapons were coming in. And information began to spread throughout the country. 
that weapons were coming in, there was an impending coup d'etat. And again, the British were there. They also told Mugabe that lots of weapons were being brought in, and some of them are in the most expensive suburbs, uh, in Bulawayo and so forth, uh, in the Mkare, the eastern part of the country. That's where the weapons were going. So the British then agreed to train the Zimbabwean forces to fight against the what would be called the coup by the leader of the opposition was Joshua Nkomo. And the British worked side by side, interestingly enough, with the Koreans to train the Zimbabweans. And the rest is history. Uh, it is said more than 20,000 uh, people died. Nobody knows the, really the exact figure. Nobody counted the bodies. But it was assumed by some of the leaders that it was 20,000 people who died. Two, in Matebereland, uh, the southern part of Zimbabwe, uh, is made up of Ndebele's and Shona's are a significant part of that population. Two, the leaders of the Matebele people have always been Kalangas. They were not really Ndebele's. Joshua Nkomo was not in the village, he was Kalanga. George Slundika, George, well, Amoyo, and others, they were all Kalangas. And Kalangas are also offshoots of the Shonas. We are the same people. But in Matibereland, they were saying that they were what? In the village. And that is very easy to understand why, because when the Nebelis came, they defeated people on the southern part of Zimbabwe and forced these people to learn the language in the valley. And so people became ethnic in the valleys, if you use the modern terminology for it. Uh, Mugabe at this time was very popular. He had refused to nationalize the land. He was very popular. And Mugabe's political situation began to decline after Tony Blair became Prime Minister of Great Britain uh, in 1997. And thereafter, he sent the Secretary for Commonwealth Affairs uh, to Zimbabwe. Because people were now demanding land. One of the objectives of fighting land was not just freedom, but also to take our land. And Zimbabwe had been independent since 1980. And by 1997, nothing had happened. So Tony Blair made things <coughs> worse by saying that he is not part to the agreement of 1979, which gave birth to uh, the independence of Zimbabwe. People were very angry. How can he say this? And he said he would never, never, never concede anything to do or to impose the decisions that were made at Lancaster to grant independence of Zimbabwe. To cut the long story short, the Lancaster House Agreement 
was made possible because the Americans intervened under President Carter and said that white people would not be financed, would not, or their properties would not be taken without compensation. Two, that the British could pay for the land which these white people had. And thirdly, the United States under President uh, Carter said, yes, it would pay 60%. And the agreement was never implemented. When President Reagan took over power, he reneged America's role in this. And at this point, many people were now saying, let's take the land, let's take the land. Uh, some of the people, including myself, uh, started saying, no, it is not the right time to do it. Let's negotiate. And negotiations were made, but they came to nothing. Even though Major had made, first Prime Minister Major, had made significant uh, improvements in the discussions, he was agreed to pay some of the money, and he was saying that the United Kingdom is not as rich as it used to be. It doesn't have that much money. And within the, Indian, uh, the nationalist circles, it was agreed that Britain was no longer as rich as it should. So they were now willing to renegotiate. Tony Blair blew it. And I'll say some things that are generally not known. Uh, in 1999, the Zimbabwe Armed Forces, made up of former freedom fighters, called Mugabe to the barracks and they arrested him. They detained him for 12 hours, demanding that he agree to take the land. While they were negotiating, some of the people went to take land from white farmers. If Mugabe had not authorized it, so a lot of people read books saying, oh, Mugabe was did this, he did nothing like that. Okay. And a lot of uh, white people were beaten. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, four died. Okay, four died. And uh, one of the people didn't die because of the uh, Africans who were going to attack him. He shot himself by mistake and died. So this is the story. After Mugabe took the land, agreed to take the land, he could not control the liberation movements. They were out of control. There's not much he could do. Okay. And the people started taking the land. Ministers started taking the land. Some people took one farm, others took two, others took three. The whole thing completely collapsed. And in 1902 the British decided to devalue the Zimbabwean dollar. At that time, the Zimbabwean dollar was one to 74 American dollars. They did it, the British ambassador said, and I was in Zimbabwe at that time doing some work with the UN. He went on national television and said, today the Zimbabwean dollar is now worth 900, uh, nine, uh, I mean, 9,500 uh, 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 pounds. 
One dollar was equivalent to almost nothing. A pound, British pound, was equivalent to over 900. Uh, and uh, I was in Zimbabwe and I said, well, why don't you sue the British Embassy? They have no right to uh, take the actions they did. They said, oh, we can negotiate. Uh, in the meanwhile, the United States also imposed economic sanctions. The European Union imposed economic sanctions. And Zimbabwe was not in a position to sell its goods. 72% of the Zimbabwe economy was directly connected or trade to the European Union. And the European Union was no longer buying this. And where do you sell your goods? This became the problem. And the climate in Zimbabwe was also not helping out. There were droughts, there was famine, people queuing for food, uh, and a new political party emerged, which figured that they could change, they could do better than Mugabe. And we have to take into consideration, Mugabe comes from a revolutionary background. He came from a party that was used to violence. And when the uh, movement for democratic change was formed, ZANU PF unleashed massive, massive violence against this party. They beat many people, some of them died. And they continued to hunt them, they burned them, put lit, uh, threw oil on them, burned them alive. And as you can imagine, the Western world was shocked. The United States, particularly, was shocked. And Mugabe lost all the support he had from the Western world. Could Mugabe have done something? Yes, he could have. But Mugabe knew the army would overthrow him. And this is the secret in the struggle for Zimbabwe. The army was very powerful. He knew that the army would overthrow him. Where he could have acted, he didn't act. The question was, had he the support to do those things? As an insider, I'll tell you that no, he didn't. I'm not condoning his policies, but I'm not saying that he could not. And he began to lose power uh, a lot. After his wife died, he married a young woman who was almost half his age. Uh, Mugabe was too old uh, to do the kind of things husbands and wives do. And uh, she started seeing other people, young men. One of them was my cousin, he was arrested and was almost beaten to death. Okay? And he is not uh, alone. I know other people who had to run away from Zimbabwe because of the kind of relationships they had with wife. And the wife also became very political, uh, talking when she was not authorized to talk, demanding positions in the party, which she got. And Zimbabwe was going downhill. There was no one to arrest the situation. No one to arrest the situation. And the party began to split. A lot of people left the party. 
they became independent and many of them joined the opposition. So when Mugabe fell sick, one of the things a lot of people were disappointed with him was that he chose to go outside the country for treatment. He went to South Africa for treatment, and who was treating him? Zimbabwean doctors were treating him. And he was also paranoid about the white people in South Africa. So he started going to China, Malaysia for treatment. And that did not look very well uh, from a lot of people who were sick in Zimbabwe who could not get medication. Mugabe could just go into Zimbabwe, National Airlines, fly to China, got his treatment. His wife would get treatment. You know what happened? Cabinet members also started leaving where to get treatment. Only the poor remained in the country. So the political system here had rotted. It really rotted. And there are people who wanted him overthrow at that time. Uh, they could not overthrow him until the army had intervened. And the army intervened through the British again, had secret meetings with the army. They planned the logistics, and South Africa was involved, and then Mugabe was out. Now, what were Mugabe's achievements in Zimbabwe? One, he did education. When I left Zimbabwe, there was one university. There were two schools with uh, what in Zimbabwe called advanced level. Two schools. The rest had nothing. Where my mother comes from in Shiwashi, there was no school. Uh, there was only one Howard Institute, uh, which did up to standard three, and in 1958, it introduced uh, two years of secondary education. That was it, okay? And the reason why this is the case is that the people in the Mazoe, Chueche area, in the northwest part of Zimbabwe, had been involved in fighting against Europeans from the 16th century, they fought against the Portuguese. They fought against the Dutch. They continued to fight. When Zimbabwe was finally colonized by the British, one of them, uh, my uncle, friend uncle, uh, organized a guerrilla movement in Mozambique and in Zimbabwe. And he was arrested and he was shot in the public in Arare. Uh, in 1902. And also the leaders of the revolutionary movement were rebelling against the white people in Zimbabwe, came from the same area. Mbuya Nehanda, Shaminoka, and that, they all come from that area. And Mugabe was never comfortable with that area. So he did not build roads. Not many schools were built in the area. So people had to build, push, to make a lot of pressure to have schools built. 
and uh, not major roads were built. Okay. So there was this regional problem that evolved. And this regional problem led to Mugabe's demise. <coughs> led to his demise. I mean, I can say a little bit more. I don't have the time to talk more about this. But the point I was going to say, there were a lot of undercurrencies that were taking place in the country. Uh, even some of the Zimbabweans who were abroad were very much involved in the politics of Zimbabwe. Many of them wanted power. They would oppose Mugabe during the day. At night, they would be calling Mugabe's office for jobs. The same people are now doing it to the new president, Munangagwa, who is now president. Uh, to cut the long story short, Mugabe had his own serious flaws. He had weaknesses. He also had strength. He was really a de dedicated nationalist. He was really a dedicated nationalist. And he was also, to some degree, a pan-Africanist. Zimbabwe became the only country in Africa that had many people who came from other parts of Africa in Zimbabwe, and some of those people became ministers. Even Mugabe himself, he is of Central African Republic. He came, he rose to be president of the country. And many people, Munangawa, who is now president, is originally from the, Bera, uh, the uh, Mozambique area. He's a senator. His people moved there. He is president. So his government has always been Pan-African government. And the current government in Zimbabwe is very Pan-African, which makes it unique. That is why in Zimbabwe you don't get people kicking people out, deporting them, as you see in South Africa. Zimbabwe has a different history of Pan-Africanism. We have, we have a lot of West Africans in Zimbabwe. We have a lot of black people from the United States, the Caribbean, uh, Latin America. There are many of them in Zimbabwe, and many of them are in the government. That makes Zimbabwe unique from the politics and the economics of expulsions, detainment, imprisonment uh, by the African countries. I personally, if one my personal view, is that I knew Mugabe from the late 1950s. He used to come to our house to eat. He was my father's classmate. <coughs> so we knew him very well. But one problem Mugabe had is that he did not listen. He did not listen. He started arrogating power to himself. And the more power he arrogated himself, the more problems he created for himself. Would I have wanted him overthrown? No. I think Mugabe could have removed democratically. In, uh, in 2008, he lost the elections. <coughs> okay? And Mugabe, as I know, he was going to resign. And Mnangagwa, who is now president, and others told him, no, 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 you cannot resign. The Constitution says, if the person who is running against does not get 50 plus one, he can't take over the government. 
And the Mugabe said, come on, I lost. And they persuaded him and he stayed. Many times I know he wanted to resign, but the army wouldn't let him. The political elite wouldn't let him. But really, he could have resigned if he really wanted to, but he didn't. So in a way, he is also to blame for his own demise. He is also to blame for his own demise. Although he was not in control of how he was removed. Uh, you can ask me any questions, but I think I will end here. Thank you very much. To, to begin this, uh, what we do have here, and I think we're very lucky to be aligned at a time where we are watching history unfold. We have multiple generations of not just Zimbabweans, but Africans who've been engaged in this conversation over the last week and a half. I think many of us haven't slept a lot because we're all trying to analyze and, uh, and, and to understand what it is about Robert Mugabe that made him equally, he brought out a lot of emotions in people. And because we have my elder here, I think that I am beholden uh, as a Zimbabwean to say that I, I have great respect and great value for what he has said. And so what I will say comes from a place of academic analysis. But I also think what's really, really important are these generational differences that we're beginning to see in how we interpret and understand Zimbabwean history. I was going to situate my analysis on the challenges of Pan-Africanism uh, at a time when Zimbabwe is really struggling and the younger generation has no sense of why it is important that we, or that they place value in Robert Mugabe's achievements. So I'll, I'll begin with the story of when I first arrived to the US in 2004. Uh, as, as a very young 17-year-old coming from Zimbabwe and never having left home before to go far away. The first professor I met in Oregon was a Ghanaian professor. And he said to me, I was so excited when I heard that we're having a Zimbabwean join us. And I said, yes. He said, yes. I want you to know that back in the 70s, the only university that I could not get into was the University of Zimbabwe. And I'm still carrying that with me, and I wanted you to know that. Uh, but he would become sort of like a local parentis. And over the years, we've had many discussions because I was coming from the place of, I don't understand this pan-Africanism, where we have leaders in Africa that have refused to leave for years and years and years. And there's leaders that have watched over the destruction of our countries. And he was coming from the Pan-Africanism of Kwame Nkrumah and the complexity of colonialism. So let me begin by saying that Robert Mugabe was not just a product of modern Zimbabwe. So when we think about him, we must not situate him in modern Zimbabwe. But we must remember that this was a person who was born in 1924 in a colonized and not independent Zimbabwe. He was born in a country that was very violent 
in a country that had no room for development for people that looked like him and sounded like him. So this is where Robert Mugabe is coming from. And what we've already had on the development of the liberation struggle. But where the challenge with Robert Mugabe and perhaps the legacy of pan-Africanist leaders comes in is, so what happened after independence? So we know some of the backstory, the difficulty of managing people who had come back from war, right? So you've got a country that is being run by people that have come back from war. We had real expectations uh, for themselves and their families. But there's also something that I think we haven't thought a lot about, which is the greed and the desire to maintain. And so this is a theme that I think we keep seeing, right? So you have a people that, um, I had the, the fortune of interviewing um, a liberation struggle leader before he died, and he said to me, look, we're dealing with people that left the war with nothing. And they have returned home, and Zimbabwe is a rich country, Africa is a rich continent, and there was a sense of, I must accumulate as much wealth as I can. And over the last week, we've seen images of Robert Mugabe's beautiful home, uh, which is named the Blue Roof. But it has a contrast. And people have also shown us beautiful images of Mobutu Sese's home, uh, which was pretty grand at the time. right? And then the question becomes, well, what is it? Why, why did people feel the need to accumulate so much wealth? But it is because they had left home with nothing and then they've come back. And there's always been this sense of, what if there's nothing tomorrow? And so I think that that, that theme of scarcity and greed punctuates every important period in the post-independence Zimbabwean era. So to fill in some of the blanks that I think the professor did not address, um, in the 1990s, we begin to experience huge cases of corruption in Zimbabwe, uh, where the country was losing, at the time I've looked at the numbers, it was over $2 billion a year, US dollars, from corruption, where a lot of the political elites were stealing from the parastatals. Also in the 1990s, war veterans did not just begin to ask for their land back, but what they started to ask for were the benefits that they had been promised. And those benefits were nowhere to be found because the war veterans' trust fund had been looted. So there was no money. And there was a lot of frustration. But there was also frustration because of the structural adjustment programs that had been brought in by the World Bank. And so today, the World Bank would tell us that Zimbabwe did not need to be readjusted, but that Zimbabwe was being used as an example of a good democracy. And in doing that, they were readjusting an economy that didn't need to be readjusted. The readjustment of Zimbabwe would then lead to massive unemployment. You know, I remember as a kid, people coming to my mom's house, and, and it's, it's very scary as a child to watch adults cry. But this was happening over and over again as people were losing their jobs in the parastatals because of the structural adjustment programs. So now there's a lot of frustration in the cities. And that frustration leads to the formation of the opposition in 1999. And so many of us understand the story of Zimbabwe as beginning in 1999 with two figures, Morgan Changrai on one hand and Robert Mugabe on the other hand. And then Morgan Changrai managed to get the support of white farmers. And white farmers are important in Zimbabwe because it was an agro-based economy, as has already been mentioned, but also because white farmers made a sort of a, an unwritten agreement with ZANU-PF in 1980 that Zimbabwean 
whites would recuse themselves from politics for as long as they could control the commerce. So now in 1999, the white Zimbabweans are beginning to think, well, we could also engage in politics, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then if you're ZANU-PF, you have a choice. Do you go with the white farmers or do you go with the liberation struggle fighters? And none of this was altruistic, right? On both the side of the farmers and the side of the war vets and even of ZANU-PF. And so we have the land reform, which is very complicated, but I think it's important for us to also mention that through the land reform, more than 3,000 smallholder farmers were able to get land that they didn't have previously. But it's also important for us to mention that a lot of black farm workers were left with no land. Many of them had families that had HIV. And so then the situation becomes exacerbated in 2005, where people's homes are destroyed by the government because they're trying to recreate the Sunshine City, right? That Zimbabwe had become dirty. And Zimbabwe was dirty because of people that were living in illegal settlements. So, the government engages in this cleanup process that leaves over 700,000 people without a home. And then we have the 2000 elections that became very, very violent. And I want you to, to contextualize violence when we have cholera and HIV as these two evil sisters, right? And so that begins to further debilitate the political system. The opposition is doing well, but the opposition also has a problem of scarcity and greed. The ruling party has a problem of scarcity and greed. So Robert Mugabe cannot leave office because if he leaves office, then the generals are left without power. And then the opposition begins to engage in these conversations with the British. And so you continue to see that even in the way that I narrate Zimbabwe's story and the way that Professor Nangwani narrates Zimbabwe's story, the British continue to play an important role. In 2008, the British are siding with the opposition. But fast forward to 2017, and the British are siding with Zimbabwe's ruling party. I had an interview with uh, the former ambassador who was in Zimbabwe in 2017, and the first thing he said to me, or she said to me was, well, I don't understand what the fuss is about. Coups happen, and countries become democratic. And so they supported a coup in Zimbabwe that has not led to democracy. In some ways, perhaps Zimbabwe would have been better off had Robert Mugabe died in office. And this is unpopular. But a coup begets a coup. And a coup leads to serious disruptment of the political system. So what the coup did was to revive ZANU-PF in strategic ways. And so now you have a very frayed opposition. And perhaps if Robert Mugabe had died in office, then the opposition would continue to have the zeal that they had. right? Because now we're in the space, and I'm going to pause talking so that we can all enter into the conversation where people are really struggling with understanding how do we evaluate Robert Mugabe. And I was explaining to other students earlier that if we were to think about Zimbabweans on a left to right spectrum, the way we have in the US, which really doesn't exist in most African countries, what we would find is that the more liberal uh, part of the population is saying, look, there's nothing complicated about Robert Mugabe. This man was evil. This man was evil, and that's all that matters. But then on the extreme right, we have people that are saying, well, no, this man fought against colonialism, so everything else doesn't matter because we situate him in a colonial society in which he was raised, and that's all that matters. But we all know that nuance is a tricky thing, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. 
So I, I think I'm really excited to hear what all of you have to say uh, as we all begin and continue to unpack the legacy of Robert Mugabe, uh, a Pan-Africanist uh, liberation struggle leader, a dictator, an authoritarian leader, someone who overstayed. Uh, and, and I think because I write about Grace Mugabe, I also want to situate and say that I don't think Grace Mugabe is to blame for any of Zimbabwe's issues at all. What we have was patriarchy playing a ball game, and it's so easy to situate women at the center of it. So you had these men that were fighting, and all of a sudden what is happening in Zimbabwe is this rewriting of Robert Mugabe's history that suggests that if he had not married a woman 40 years younger than him, then nothing bad would have happened in Zimbabwe. But we know that's not true because Robert Mugabe was capable of engineering Gukra Hunti by himself in the absence of Grace Mugabe, right? And we also know that Grace doesn't become Comrade Grace until 2008. Before that, Grace is running her charity and shopping. She's definitely using the country's money to shop, right? So that's where we get the nickname Gucci Grace. But she wasn't involved in politics until 2008 when the current president and the generals needed someone who could convince people that Robert Mugabe had not lost. And so they create the persona of Comrade Grace. But you know what happens when you create personas? So Grace realizes, well, I don't need them at all. In fact, I could lead Zimbabwe by myself. And so she begins to try to get rid of these key players. Now we can write entire books about her failures as a political strategist. But I don't think Robert Mugabe gets a new beginning that centers all of his failures on Grace Mugabe. I, I, I simply don't think that that's something that uh, is possible or something that uh, makes <coughs> logical sense. But on that note, um, I invite all of us to enter into the conversation. Uh, and I want to say that I, you know, I think this is a safe space. Online, we've seen these debates on Robert Mugabe become very ugly because of course he's a man that evokes many, many emotions. But I want to assure you that this is a safe space. However you feel about him is legitimate. Thank you. So um, feel free to ask questions to our speakers or uh, articulate any comments that you might have. We are, we are now in an open Forum. Free space? Safe space. Safe space. Yeah. Safe space. <laughs> One tiny question, which I, which I sort of follow Mugabe in his book, and his socialist and all that stuff. One of them talks about the fact that Zanabi didn't even have an ideology. And you seem to attribute a lot of things to personal biography. Does ideology come in in any, in trying to explain and understand the phenomenon of a Mugabe? How does ideology come in? So I think ideology is actually quite tricky because on one hand, ZANU-PF says that they were socialist. Uh, but if we look at the way that the country is run, we see that it was, uh, there's a bit of socialism, there's a bit of this communist ideology that's uh, brought in from North Korea and Russia. But we also see that Zimbabwe develops into, I think you would agree that a very capitalist society in some ways. Um, and I think the ideological vacuum that we've had in Zim is what's created serious challenges for the opposition. So not necessarily for ZANU-PF, because for ZANU-PF the message has always been, 
we are not going to allow uh, neocolonialism. So if you might think about that as an ideology in of itself, right, the fighting of uh, colonialism in all of its forms. But the opposition has really struggled uh, in finding a clear ideology for their political parties. No, I'm talking parties. about really, I'm trying to talk, understand where Wellington is trying to talk about the failure. He said they have to throw an ideology. He's saying the opposition does not have an ideology. I'm saying, as I've followed the discussion by both of you, my only question is, is there something of a failure? You talk about scarcity and scarcity and corruption, which again goes on to human trait and sort of forwards. But I'm asking, uh, taking off on the point where they were unable, the leading part to form or have some guiding, by no judge, I just simply mean a, a guiding sense of values and principles as to how we run the society. How does that come in, or is the inability to afford it something as a guiding principle, is it helpful or not helpful, or could we simply reduce it to scarcity and greed, or not having formed? I'm just, does that, in terms of your being the scholar, what has happened? I mean, so it just kind of be, I know it's an important thing in terms of corruption and greed and all that stuff, but is there any way in which we could theorize about why such failures occurred? Because we all subjected to, to greed and all that kind of stuff. And I think the Zimbabwean story, I mean, it was the breadbasket of the world, well, I'm trying to develop the question of education. What happened? I am not entirely convinced it would be scarcity and greed, or what would have talked about grace and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just trying, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm trying to see if we could at least spend a little time talking about where lies from the notion of the Pan-Africanist notion, the Marxist, I think it was the more Soviet Marxist, where he got to this world and so on and so forth. What happened? That's my only point. And could that help to explain? Or is it relevant? Um, we are talking about something I was really intimately involved with. Um, when we were fighting, as I mentioned, that there was a certain affinity to, to socialism, particularly towards Marxism-Leninism, when we negotiated for independence in 1978, 1979, I went to Lancaster House. And I was one of those people who were ejected from the conference for a number of reasons. One, the people who were negotiated were not the people who had been intimately involved with the revolution. And that is where we lost it. They were not. Most of the revolutionaries were sided. Most of the, uh, what we call people who would have run the country, some of them were killed. I know personal friends who got killed. Uh, and come 1980, a lot of people put in positions of power had no clue about socialism which we're talking about. Many of them came from the United States. They wanted to make as much money as they possibly could. They saw the state as an institution to make money. So ideology was thrown asunder. So it's no longer to talk about ideology. I am, some of the people were 50 years, 60 years old. They'd never worked. And all they wanted was to get as much money as they could before they died and they leave the money to their children, 
or to their wife or their wives or girlfriends, whatever the situation was. This was one aspect of it. Two, the neighboring countries, Kaunda was extremely anti-socialist. Yeah. Okay. Botswana was anti-socialist. The only socialist country closest to us uh, was Namibia. I'm not sorry, was uh, Tanzania and uh, Angola. Mozambique was fighting a civil war, which was also ideological. So the issue of ideology really never developed very much inside the country. And there's also another added factor. A lot of people in Zimbabwe came from Malawi, Zambia, Mozambique, had no interest in the land issue. They had virtually no interest. In and these people were in the capital city in Harare. That's why in Harare you never got a very strong movement towards what? Taking the land. They just wanted to make as much money as they possibly could. So the ideology which we had when we were devising the system came to nothing. And I would add that I think yeah. you, you continued yeah. to, so the party continued to build frameworks for their ideology. In fact, Sanofi have had the School of Ideology um, that still runs, I think. And when you read on paper, right, so whether it's the political manifestos from 1980 all the way to 2013, there is a clear set of values for the political party. There's a clear set of political values for uh, that they wanted for the country. But the reason I go back to scarcity and greed is because you almost have like a parallel system, right? So where you have the ideology and the values on paper and sometimes mentioned in the campaigns, but it never really translates into how the leaders govern the country. Um, there was a lot of influence from, I guess, uh, Castro, um, but none of that really fully translated. And some people say that part of the reason is this uh, settler British colonialism that, so what we inherited from the British, right? So the British system that was uh, still governing the country, that, that sort of diluted any serious uh, ideology that came back from the war or that the liberation struggle leaders had. So if we were to just look at ZANU-PF on paper, then it is clearly socialist um, in their thinking. But that doesn't translate into how they govern at all. Well, maybe in some ways, if we think about but not really, because all the changes that are quote-unquote socialists that came in the 90s come out of the Washington consensus actually from the structural adjustment programs, but they were not something that, uh, that ZANU-PF wanted, and they were something that were highly opposed in the country uh, as a whole. And, and just add on that, there was um, an international dimension to this in that most of these liberation movements are happening in the midst of the Cold War. So uh, the Cold War was basically um, uh, a war between the United States, war of ideology between the United States and then USSR, it eventually ended with the collapse of the USSR in 1990. So that's why you see that most of these liberation movements are receiving aid from China and, and, and the USSR, and with the aid, military aid uh, in hardware plus training, you also have the ideology. So almost actually all of the liberation movements ideologically identified themselves with Marxism. Mugabe was an avowed Marxist-Leninist, but once he came into power, he ran 
a full-fledged um, free market system. So during the phase of the liberation struggle, it was much easier to align oneself with the ideologies of Marxism. But when these revolutionaries came into power, the reality was that they did not have the luxury of running their governments and their economies according to Marxism and Leninism. So this Marxism and Leninism was more seductive and seemed more practical as a revolutionary, as a way of articulating um, the cause for independence, but then as a governing authority, it was a different, it was a different um, issue. That's why most of these movements abandon uh, Marxism and Leninism once they come into power. I, I would say that, um, well, there's some element of truth in what you're saying. But we should forget, not forget the fact that when Mugabe's cabinet was put there, who were the socialists in his first cabinet? Just, just, just look at it. Who were the socialists? I have many friends of mine who went home, became members. They wanted to have an opportunity to have what? A nice house. Okay? A nice wife. A nice car. But we used Marxism, Leninism, as an instrument of organization to appeal to the masses, to support us. But when we ourselves were not Marxist Leninists, and this became the problem of Zimbabwe, uh, it is still there today. Uh, those who left ZANU PF went to MDC, their political position didn't change. They were still amassing wealth, and a wealth is still being um, uh, people like Nari and others who were revolutionaries, they were all gunned down uh, between 1973 uh, and 1975. So that by the time we had the conference, most of these revolutionaries were killed. Okay? And that explains why most of our leadership talked about revolution, but they were really not revolutionaries. Mugabe was a classical example who talked about the revolutions when he himself was not a revolutionary. So we have uh, public relations of being a revolutionary and people thinking that we are revolutionary. On the other hand, deep down, we were really not a revolutionary. And this is the problem. Now, your point about amassing wealth makes point because they were also what? taking a lot of money. And, they were, and this is not Zimbabwe only. This is the same problem in South Africa. Mm -hmm. When Mandela died, he left a fortune of over $900 million. Where did that money come from? Where's that documented? Oh, it, it is documented. No, I'm asking where? Uh, I pardon? Where is the document? Oh, South African government is. Also yeah. particularly when they are fighting about who should get what, they had to figure out what amount of money are we talking about. So I the information is there. Okay. Uh, but this is our problem in South Africa. It's the same thing. There's massive corruption. In Zimbabwe, massive corruption. 
I just want to stop here because something you want to ask yeah. Mugabe, as far as I know, wanted to, to resign many times. And uh, the army and some of the elite, my colleagues, didn't want him to go. Because we were afraid if he went, there would be a vacuum. There was no one leader uh, the nationalist movement identified with other than Mugabe at one time. Okay. On the other hand, it was Joshua Nkomo as well. Mm. So this, you are talking about personality politics here, how individuals can entrench themselves into power. That is the case. But also there's a flaw in the analysis of African politics. Uh, people think in terms of the big man syndrome. They identify the political system with the leader instead of looking at how power is structured within those movements. I remember I said in Zimbabwe they had collective leadership. But everybody mentions only Mugabe and nobody else. But there were other people who were more powerful than Mugabe in the system. And he could not go against those people. Okay. And this is the thing. So we are analyzing things with a, a very, very, very broad uh, analysis, which does not really lead us to understand what are the dynamics of the politics, because we've been used to the Nkrumahs. But wouldn't we say the, the that the uh, it's uh, also, you know, I think it's a reflection really of how the West writes about individuals, right? So in, in <laughs> Western context, we are often writing about individuals who make this big things happen, right? So, and, and so that's translated into how we thought about African politics, that Nkrumah was this one-man band that brought democracy to Ghana, and therefore Mugabe was this one-man band that brought uh, democracy to Zimbabwe. But in, in the Zimbabwean case, we've actually been quite lucky because after the coup, uh, the stories began to unravel. Uh, the war veterans started to argue against themselves. That's why we're all very surprised that Robert Mugabe is getting a hero's burial, because after, his, after the coup, what we were now hearing from the liberation struggle fighters, including people that are like 55 or 60 years old, so we, we really don't know where, you know, how they were fighting the war at like 10 years <laughs> old or 20, you know, 15 years old. But what we were now hearing at the time is a narrative we'd never heard before, that well, Robert Mugabe is not really a fighter. He doesn't know how to hold a gun. He was just somebody who was very eloquent, and so we elevated him. But the way, but 
in that narrative, the problem still exists where they're trying to elevate Emerson Mnangagwa. So it's not really about telling the truth of the liberation struggle, but it's to say that, you know, Emerson Nagawa should have been the person. It's just that he wasn't as eloquent. But the problem with that, we know that there these are the people, the, the Chitepos, the Tongogaras, who are then again getting washed out. So and, and I think perhaps that's actually a fault of academics, right? That the way we've, we've written uh, historical narratives is that we've been so focused on one person uh, and one person alone. And Zimbabweans are seeing that, right? So the coup happened in 2017, but then things haven't improved. So was Robert Mugabe really the issue, or is the issue the system? And, and that's a challenge that I think scholars of, of Zimbabwean politics, citizens, you know, um, would have to really address thoughtfully, I think. I have a question regarding a little bit of that last point of um, what's the question, what's the problem with Mugabe or the system itself? Because like this summer we saw um, in Sudan and then also like also in Algeria, we've seen um, these kinds of people rising up and having conversations saying that we're, we're tired of the system um, and that we want systems to be completely reformed um, and to be uh, turned around its head. In that same way, like you think about like the early 2000s in um, Zimbabwe and um, various uh, levels of like with structural adjustment. Was there a point at which like, people did come together again? Like, was it because of the strength of the military itself that that never really pushed to the point of Sudan? And then now that you have this thing where you see that this truly a post-Mugabe era, era now he's, he's gone, is is there, a, and if there's nothing actually really been changing with the government, is there now a point at which you think that it would happen that there would be people who would be stepped forward who are not part of the, um, the old guard and say, like, enough is enough and we need to move forward and figure out what we want our political system to truly look like in terms of what the, the endemic idea of No, because the, the system is self-breeding. Uh, so what we have is that the new generation of leaders just wants the other generation, what the other generation of leaders had. And, and I'm pretty, um, you know, aware of what Professor Kujo is bringing up, that are we just... Uh, uh, using simple, ex you know, simple explanations of greed and scarcity, but that's what it really is: is that this uh, new cycle of leaders simply want what the G40 that got kicked out had. Uh, so the people that got kicked out with Robert Mugabe and Grace Mugabe, these are individuals that had 50-bedroom houses. That's what. That's all we knew about them: that they had 50-bedroom houses. They never spoke about ideology. They never spoke about politics. And then this new crop of people that are backing Emerson Nangagwa. What we've seen is that, with the way that Zimbabwe is so poor right now, these are people that are managing to bring into the country uh, cars that are worth what two hundred thousand dollars. So every week, one of them is bringing another car that's worth two hundred thousand dollars. And where the struggle for ideology comes for them now is that. On one hand, they're saying that, well, the sanctions are preventing us from developing. And then next week, we see them with the latest car that we don't even see on American streets. So then it's like, well, are these sanctions selective that you can't bring in medicine, but you can bring in fancy cars? Like, how is that working? But again, it's because the politics isn't really backed by any real belief that we are anti-neocolonialism. I think I agree with what you are saying. However, we have to look at the dynamics of the Zimbabwean politics, cultural politics. We have to take that into consideration. 
that there was a lot of ethnic issues in Zimbabwean politics. Uh, regionalism in Zimbabwean politics. So it was very difficult to talk about a national leadership, a leadership that did not reflect its ethnic background. When those leaders got into power, what they, what, what they did was to funnel resources to the regions where they come from, not the entire country. Even positions were apportioned according to uh, regionalism. And this is a major problem which we are facing in Zimbabwe today. When Munangagwa became the leader, the people from his area said, we now have what we want our own president. Okay. But just to be clear, we didn't get anything at all. Well, I, I don't know that. But I'm simply saying, what he says is that they want people, people some from his region were saying they wanted their own president. In Manitaland, they are also saying what? They want their own president. In Matiberaland, they say, we have never had a president. We want our own president. So these are the issues that are advising. And if you come from the Chuesh area, we've been fighting Europeans from the 17th century. They say, we produce leaders who fought. What have we gotten? This is the thing. And people say, we are being used. So what we lack is really is national leadership. How can you bring all these people together to think as one, to think development being, uh, being for all the people of Zimbabwe, not for various groups of people. So our nationalism is very warped, okay? And uh, I have people who don't talk to me now from the time of the liberation movement because I come from a wrong area. I went home, I talked to people, oh, now you are back. One of the leaders I was unfortunate, I taught him, uh, uh, he did his PhD with me, and we didn't give him his PhD. And he told me, if you come home, young men were going to kill you. Okay, I went home, so I told everybody, so I had people who were uh, behind me. But again, what I'm simply saying is that, we need to develop a national leadership, which reflects the value of the people in the country. We don't have that now. And if we don't do, don't do that, we are going to continue with the same problem. I didn't want to call it ethnicity, but regionalism is a better word for it. And the comment will be what, uh, what Professor Nagoni said and what Dr. Sengere also said. First of all, what uh, happened in Zimbabwe according to what I understood is that independence, the way power was transferred from colonialism, the leader did not get to, to the way the power was transferred, they didn't get the opportunity to bring the people together. They didn't bring the people together and rally against an agenda or an ideology that will govern the, the nations. And this happened in many African countries up to now. Uh, maybe we could take an example of Tanzania where Nerele used the idea of socialism to rally against 
And the idea of accumulating wealth is like in many African countries, after independence, people went to grab the properties that were owned by the colonial powers, and then, you know, we developed the, the, the classes, like the, the way now we have very poor people, again, like very few rich people in our, our countries. But then when we look at um, just some things we don't talk about, uh, especially when the professor mentioned about, uh, uh, for example, Russia providing weapons, and also the views of to nationalize the land that was part of what was negotiated when Zimbabwe was getting independence. And the idea of Mugabe being detained uh, by the military, which you know, you know there's a conflict here. If Mugabe could, could have relinquished that power, maybe the military could have killed him because maybe they had interest. These are the people who had fought for the independence of Zimbabwe and they knew what they wanted and they knew the only person who can get them achieve what they wanted was Mugabe. So it was kind of, we had like con conflicting forces around him. So can we discuss Zimbabwe without looking at the external forces that were playing around? What was no, but maybe we should get a few more comments and then Please. we can Thank you. So, uh, my name is Hawan, I'm from Nigeria. And I was listening, um, and I'm boiling inside. <laughs> and I listened to you, you as well. And I said to myself, this is a fountain of wisdom. You are history in front of us. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much you have written. I don't know how much has been extracted out of you. Because who writes our history? <coughs> who? And so we sit here and we make references to somebody that used in Hausa, we say bazaar, bazaar, we use our clothes to go and dance somewhere. And we reenact re what you said, that somebody has said and said. And then we want to refer to it after you have refined it and then we want to make the search of it. It's like, come on, who write history and from what angle are they saying history and writing for us? So I think part of it is the narration of that. And you're speaking about academia and, and, and how somehow we have got it right or not very good or not even right at all. And I see Mugabe as a hero, I'm so sorry. He is a hero. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, with the advance of social media, artificial intelligence and algorithm, and how things are twisted, I saw a lot of videos that were sent out absolutely <coughs> about his house. Who can confirm that was his house? Was it a doctor? Is oh, it no, true? it's really. It's I don't know. I, I mean, I'm a from the so I, I don't know. I can, I, have I, no can, judgment. I can tell you where the money came from. Now, I don't want to yeah. go there. Yeah. But my sense of it is that 
we have issues as a continent that we have, as, as at some point in history, things have happened. And things happen upon things that happen upon things. And I think if we sort of go back a little bit to where we are coming from, and to see how people are telling our history, I was in United Nations at a point where for a co-funding to be given to some African countries, you cannot teach your history. Why some people live by their history? And the history are written by somebody else. And that is why I was hoping that maybe you have written a lot and we can really tap from your wisdom. Uh, because you are speaking, I know somebody, I know my uncle did this, <coughs> my brother was there. This is reality where we are holding in our hands and for me it's more powerful. And finally, I just want to end by saying that as we remember Mugabe, and I hope somebody has put something together which I have no idea, his sayings, if it is true what you read about it, his, 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 his savvy mind, intellectually savvy mind, that you should use it as something to propel Zimbabwe and the continent because there is such a fountain of wisdom in a lot of people of his age and, and himself. And so let us look at the positive of the continent and find it and make sure that together we build that continent because that is where the motherland is. I, um, okay. oh, you, you well, I, I, I also want to make a comment. Uh, <clears throat> I'm from Liberia and in Liberia we say the fish rocks from the head. And so when there is a problem, the leadership takes lead. Uh, I lived through the civil conflict of Liberia where, <clears throat> you know, we had a brutal civil war. And I remember <clears throat> one of those incidents where the rebels, they have gone all over from the city to the villages and they have looted eating the people, cow, the sheep, and everything. And I remember the citizens at the time, it was very tough for people to really take the bull by the horn by coming to the city to lodge complaint to of the rebel to Charles Taylor. And when they did that, the response Charles Taylor gave was, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to get rid of my strong fighting forces? And I remember the citizens saying, well, we know you brought this revolution to lead people, not empty structures. So if, if, you're, if, you're, if your freedom fighter continues like this, mm -hmm. definitely we are not going to give you our support. You can kill all of us. That changed Charles Taylor's attitude towards the rebel. That's when he started executing people who were caught raping, people who were caught taking people's stuff. That's how it started. I was there working as a media person. Now, <clears throat> what I'm hearing is we can't hold Rawa Mugabe responsible for what was happening because of the system. The system has always been there. 
when priests, uh, men of color, went to Liberia to establish their country, they took the ideology of this system and carried there. And it was because of that system of marginalization that caused, in the first place, the Civil War. That's why a lot of people fought against the one-party system that was there. And so most African countries like Julius Nureri from Tanzania and another African leader which I don't remember very well, but these people are concerned, they are known for the system they put in place for their country despite the difficulties, despite what they inherited from colonial masters. So my question is, I, I'm one of those pricing, <clears throat> I really embraced Robert Mugabe from the way in which he started the struggle. But at the same time, I also look at Robert Mugabe and hold him personally responsible for the hardship he caused his people. Because there is no way in my mind if we are going to establish what we've been talking about, Pan-Africanism, we always have blame, but somebody must take lead. So in light of commenting on Pan-Africanism, how can we use Robert Mugabe as an example that we can learn from to move this system of working together as African one Africa, I hope it will happen in my lifetime. I'll be really happy before I get in my grade. But how do we learn, what's the lesson to be learned from the Robert Mugabe scenario to guide us into Pan-Africanist structure? I, I would say that uh, a lot is happening, okay? With many young people today who are doing a lot of things, some of us thought could never be done. They are in business, they are in education, they are in science. There is a lot that is taking place. But what I really wanted to say about Mugabe, I had tremendous respect for him. Uh, he did a lot. Coming into consideration that Zimbabwe was a settler society colony. The whites dominated everything in Zimbabwe. They did not even allow Africans to go in certain businesses. My father was one of the richest people in Zimbabwe. He owned buses going from one area to another, first African buses. He owned them. They can only be ridden by, by black people. White people were not allowed. Those people who came into our buses, they didn't pay. They would just go and sit in front. They didn't pay. But our failure, mine too, and many others, was we failed to harness the people's power. We did not. We failed to do what uh, Nyerere did, to say, you are Tanzanian first. We failed to say, you are Zimbabwean first. We did not do that. So our problem of nation building were very flawed. Two. The second point is that because we're colonized by the British, Zimbabwe had the largest population. In fact, the area, nearby area I grew up in, is highlands. 
islands had a population of 100,000 white people plus. Now, if you look of the whole of Africa, excluding South Africa and North Africa, there were 64,000 white people. So you can see the impact uh, Europeans had on Zimbabwe and our thinking and the wide control of the political institu economic institutions never changed. They were there when we got independent. The economy was still in the hands of the whites. Now, one of the things I'm writing a book now, no, somebody mentioned about books. I've written 18 books. Zimbabwe is, uh, is one, I wrote two books on Zimbabwe. Okay. There are many other people who are writing on Zimbabwe, who are Zimbabweans. So the literature is there on how we can do. But the issue here, what I'm simply saying is that we have never been able to have very strong movements of national mobilization or nation building. We did not do that, and we need to do that. Even Nkrumah in Ghana, he had problems, but he did nation building. You could go, I was in Ghana in 1962. There were bush radios in the forest. At six o'clock, there would be news. You'd be in the middle of the forest, but there's a radio there on the forest. You knew what was happening. In Zimbabwe, we did it. We were trying to model ourselves on the Westminster model of government, which was alien to us, which we didn't understand. And the last thing I also want to say is that when we became independent, many of our people had never been involved in any form of government. In West Africa, you had legislative council, you had Africans who were in government. Uh, in East Africa, Zimbabwe, we did not have. Okay. So these people were learning as they were going, but they could have done a better job. But on the issue of Pan-Africanism, I have tremendous respect for Mugabe what he stood for. Okay. He may not have succeeded something, but he did de he definitely succeeded in creating an African presence. He created that throughout the continent. And the last thing I'm also saying is that I am writing a book on the past to various development in Africa now. It's almost done. One of the things I discovered in the book was what I call international financial flaws. Zimbabwe loses, not Zimbabwe, Africa itself, loses over $50 billion a year. Many estimates are between 50 to $100 billion a year. Between 1990 to 2010, Africa lost a trillion. This money is being externalized by the businesses, foreign businesses that are in Africa. The African elites are also part of the, of the corruption. Financial institutions, the big banks. The World Bank is a major conduit for the externalization of this capital. Now, many Africans don't know this, what I'm talking about. The question is, what can we do to make Africa conscious of what it's doing? If we continue with the same patterns of economic development, we will, trust me, we will never develop because a lot of resources are being taken. The question is, how do we stop the externalization of these international financial flows? 
it is the major problem. Two, many of our people are being taught and educated in American economic systems. That's what we're teaching many of our kids, European economic systems. And they go home, they want, like a good son of my, uh, a son of my friend said, oh, why are we here drinking Coke in glasses? We need cans. When I was in Boston, I was, my Coke was always in cans. Africa doesn't have that. But there's a simple misunderstanding of the question of the ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. In other words, who owns the resources? Who controls them? who calls, controls the international financial system. Africans are not at the global market. We are not there. Things are decided for us. Until we start taking measures to be part of the system that controls our own economic destiny, we will remain where we are. I mean, I can go on, but the point is this. Hello, good afternoon. Um, my name is Lashonda um, Lindsay Dennis, but a couple of things kind of came to mind as I'm listening to the conversation. Um, because one of the things that I always question and think about, like whose lens are we using to evaluate Mugabe? So sometimes when we, when a society has been oppressed and marginalized and they are liberated, the society, the leaders, the next leaders of that society tends to um, duplicate the same things that marginalize their people. So in terms of looking at his ideologies and his leadership styles, you know, how much of an influence were is colonization? And then um, secondly, because I feel like it has a huge influence on everything, you know, just the whole conversation in general, whether he's good or bad or whatever, why can't he be in between or why can't, why do we have to evaluate him on the spectrum anyway? And then the second point is to think about the ways in which, like, what was the, the region like before it was colonized by the British? And what can be gleaned from looking at it from a historical perspective in terms of governance and how people, more humanizing ways of being that we can use to rebuild a global and a pan African society um, throughout the African diaspora. Yeah, and thank you, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. I think uh, what we do get to do, um, gleaning from that, is that Robert Mugabe's generation, uh, he marks the end of a generation. And as exciting as it is, I think, in some ways, to go and look at their mistakes and try to evaluate them, I think they existed in a period that no longer exists. And so the younger generation, I think, what's missing from this conversation is what has the next generation tried to do to rectify the mistakes of the liberation struggle leaders? And how has this generation tried to move the country forward? I really think that that's where some of the gap exists. Uh, where in Zimbabwe, these, the conversation really has been on what others haven't done. And perhaps part of it is to do with the fact that politics has become uh, quite scary. Either it's very scary to enter into politics because you think something bad will happen to you, or politics becomes a place for people that um, are willing to play dead 
dirty or the people you know people that have money or whatnot but i think what i'm hearing from this conversation is really a challenge for the next generation of africans whether they want to call them whether they want to call themselves young pan-africanists or whether we're thinking about uh, a globalized africa that's something that people have been talking a, a lot about uh, because what happened also on the 6th when Mugabe died is that Robert Mugabe dies on the 6th and then a few hours later we're hearing these very tragic reports in South Africa on xenophobia. So, it, so the tension was, the tension of the entire week has been on one hand we've got someone who is saying, you know, what we want is this Africa that's united. And we even saw it when Cyril Ramaphosa went to Zimbabwe for the funeral, that he was booed by young Zimbabweans that said, you don't get to come here and talk to us about pan-Africanism when South Africans are burning other Africans alive on the street. But the people that are doing the burning are people that are less than 32 years old. Right. And so I don't think that that responsibility should really be placed on the older generations, but that the younger generation needs to figure out how we're going to write our own story and how we move the continent forward, because it is possible. And I think, you know, you were talking about your nephew who's gone back home and talking about the Sodekin, but next semester I'm teaching a class on globalization. And one of the things that we read um, is a book that has done an excellent review of the exciting ways that young people are people who've never left the african continent in kenya they're using exciting new methodologies to get health access in very remote areas you've got young people in countries that nobody really writes about in guinea bissau um, doing some excellent work on energy and climate change so i think there is a lot that's going on perhaps we're just not highlighting all the stories. Uh, so suffice to say that I think the way that we think and will continue to think about Robert Mugabe will be very complicated. But as a scholar, I find that particularly exciting, right? Because complicated means that we have a lot of room to unpack, to explore, to question, uh, but also to improve on it. And you rightly mentioned, the books that everybody was talking about on BBC are books that were written by non-Zimbabweans. And I've listened to those interviews and I've sort of been like, what? What Zimbabwe is that? What Africa is that? But then I also have to remind myself that, well, maybe it's because you haven't written the next book. So um, on that note, we really want to thank you all for coming and we hope to see you at more events.